sermon text for this morning is Mark 7, 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, so that it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The word of God. Good morning, guys. So this morning, at some point I was like looking for my water bottle, realized I left my Bible at home, but it's really good to be here. <laughs> so um, I was, you know, as I was looking at this text this week, I thought of uh, this moment before my wife and I had kids. So we had a family that was staying with us. And uh, one morning, Jackie and I were making breakfast, and their three-year-old daughter, she comes out, and she's in this, like, elaborate dress, and she says, you know, hey, good morning. I say, oh, good morning, Sydney. And then she just continues to stare at us, like, and she kind of starts twirling a little bit, kind of moving her dress. And I think it's like my wife that finally picked up on it, like, oh, Sydney, your dress is beautiful. You look, you look so pretty this morning. And then she, like, smiled and, and ran away. Because it's very clearly why she came out and said good morning to us. She wanted to be acknowledged that this dress was really beautiful and that she looked really pretty that morning. And I, so I, I thought of this, of like, there, what I, one thing I just love about little kids is that they are so obviously outward about the things that are going on inside of their heart, 
And as we get older, we learn to, whether it's suppress it, ignore it, or find socially acceptable ways to win approval, which is what Sydney was craving that morning is just some approval from the people in the house where she was at. And I know that we would love to believe that winning the approval of others is a three-year-old girl problem. It's not. And we are all finding ourselves, I heard it said this way, in the courtroom of humans longing for this, the verdict of being approved by people around us. So I mean, just take like a small example, luxury products. There is a vast difference between wearing a Seiko $10 Walmart watch and a $15,000 Rolex, and it says something entirely different about who you are when you're wearing one or the other. And we, in some ways, buy it because we want people to think and say things about us when we wear a Rolex. And so now you might be thinking, <laughs> I do not have that problem at all. I'm definitely not going to buy a Rolex. That's because the people you're trying to win approval from are not Rolex collectors. They happen to be some other group of people. Whatever race you're running, the reality is like we just grow up and in, in inundated with the reality that we are constantly in a pursuit to get a trophy in order to validate like who we are and what we're doing. So how do you get the trophy? You run faster than everyone else. Like how do you become the star student? You score better than anyone else on the exam that you're taking. How do you get the job? that you want, you have the application that stands out among everyone else. Like just everywhere around us is this echo, this reality of trying to win approval by being better, bigger, faster. And so it ends up coming out in the fact that we not only thirst to be good, but we thirst even uh, to be better so that we can be validated. So we don't just want to be good parents. We want to be better parents than those parents. Or we don't want to just have a good marriage. Like we want a marriage that people are writing home about. Like they look at this. This is incredible. We don't just want to be a good employee. Like we absolutely want to make sure that we are the employee that the boss thinks of when the promotion comes. Now, there's some good there. I'm not saying it's bad to be an employee so that you're working and the boss says you are a hard worker. That's not the point, the reality that I'm trying to get at is that we were created with a longing for someone to say we're good. And I heard it put this way to me one time and I found it helpful. It built into each one of us is this longing to be pleasing to the people we value. So it may not be Rolex watch collectors or that crowd, whomever you value, so Tolkien said this once, he said, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. So the reason that we have this longing, this longing for this good to be spoken over us is because God has created us to have his very good spoken over us. So think of Adam in the garden. He gets from God himself good. From the minute we're born, we are created with a longing for God to speak over into our lives, you are good. So what becomes dangerous is that if we seek that declaration anywhere else, whether it's a Rolex 
whether it's trying to keep the law, whether it's trying to impress your boss, whether it's trying to be the best parent, friend, roommate, son, daughter, or in today's text, washing your hands in a special ritual, and we won't find God's very good spoken over us in anything else, anything else except for in him, and anytime we try, it's something far inferior. You might hear good spoken over you, but it will be far inferior than God speaking his good over you. So what we're gonna see in today's text, we're gonna see a group of people in the, the Pharisees, they've come up with some false ways to try to win God's approval. All their substitutes fall short, and in fact, ironically, in their pursuit to have God speak good over his people, they actually set them up for the opposite, for God to speak his wrath, his condemnation, his you are not good, you are not obeying. And so the reality is they come up with this idea and they miss that it's found in Christ and nowhere else. And what they miss is that they, we have a, actually a heart problem and they're addressing the symptom and not the heart. So today in the text, we're going to see that scrubbing your hands, it's never gonna cleanse your heart. Or the problem that we have is not that we are made unclean when we eat bacon, it's that we have sin, that's, that's the problem. The problem isn't that we need new laws, it's that we need a new heart. So here's where we're going, we need this. We need to see uh, this as we come to this text. So we will see that we don't need new laws, we need a new heart, and we're gonna see it in three um, sections. One, we're gonna look at dirty hands, that's verses one through eight. Then we'll move in, we'll see dirty money, if you will, in verses nine through 13, and then finally, dirty hearts, which is 14 through the end of our passage today, which is verse 23. So I love to pray, and then uh, we'll set the scene, kind of set the text up, and then we'll dive in, just get into this text. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for your son. Without him, we would have no hope. We would be dead in our trespasses and sins. Our hearts would be corrupt, dirty, defiled, and we would be stuck washing our hands, hoping it would cleanse our hearts. So thank you for your son. Thank you for grace. We're, we're coming this morning under your word, needing your word to transform our hearts. So would it do that. Would you come as we open your word and would you root out laws that we've created that are bringing condemnation, not freedom? Would you root out... Um, any way that we would try to win approval? And would we know that we have, through your son, won your declaration that we are very good in your sight because of your son's work. Therefore, now no condemnation for us. Help us now as we look at your word. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so our text, it opens up, we meet the Pharisees, and it says that there's some scribes also that have come from Jerusalem. Now, mind you, they have walked 90 miles, or road camels, or something. They've traveled 90 miles to get here, to have this conversation with Jesus. When they left Jesus last, he was healing, um, I, I think it was a man with a withered hand, but he, anyway, uh, maybe it was a demon. Regardless, it was on the Sabbath, he healed and the Pharisees didn't like it, and they leave saying, we are going to plot to kill him. That's the that's last cut scene. Now they've traveled 90 miles, they're with Jesus, and you can imagine, I, 
I'm thinking we're probably to guess their hearts really haven't changed in their disposition to Jesus. Meanwhile, in this time, Jesus has now healed someone with leprosy. He's healed someone who bled for 12 years, a gal who bled for 12 years. He's touched a dead body. It was a, of a girl that he raised to life, but first she was dead. All of which are things in the Old Testament that make you unclean. Not to mention, we just went, he just fed 5,000, then he walks on water, and now at the very end of chapter six, he is in the market, which is another place by tradition that they would say you'd be unclean because there's a bunch of dead animals and all of this stuff, and a bunch of sick people, unclean people, are coming to him and he's touching them and healing them. Cut scene, Pharisees, scribes are before him, and what are they angry about? He's unclean, his disciples are unclean, and so now we pick up the story, and here's where, it, we'll pick it up in verse two, here's what they say. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. So now we've gotta just pause and make sure that we don't just think like, yeah, this is definitely one in the Pharisees court, like that's gross. I mean, definitely wash your hands before you eat. And so we just got to make sure we're clear. This is not a conversation about hygiene. That, I don't know what the conversations about hygiene were, but we've got to be really clear. This is not what the Pharisees, they're not like, you've got dirty hands, you should wash them because of bacteria. For them, what's going on is that they have this ritual. Whatever the ritual looked like, it was this ritual that was involved and semi-complex and kind of showy, but it went to show that you're cleaning off all of this dirt so that you could then eat. So that's what's going on. They're concerned with what? They are concerned with God declaring people good, clean, and therefore not to defile yourself by doing something that you shouldn't when you're unclean. So does that make sense of what's going on? It's not hygiene, but this reality of this clean and unclean. Now, Mark's gonna leave no doubt though this is purely tradition. This is not the Pharisees rightly applying God's words. So just look, we'll just pick it up in verse three. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to, here it is, the traditions of the elders. Or you Pick it up again in verse four. You see the word tradition. Or in verse five. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Okay, so, I mean, the truth, it, it's like as stark as red is on tomatoes. Like, there, this is the Pharisees' invention, the elders of this ritual. Now, what they've done is they've actually, they've expanded upon um, God's original law because there were requirements about washing your hands. And if you notice, um, in, in there it talks about them washing uh, like cups and other pitchers and all of that. Okay, that, that was there in the Old Testament, but here's where it was. This is for a very specific group of people in a very specific time. It was for the Levites. Okay, so the priests of the day when they went into the temple, okay, so specific people at a specific moment, they went into the temple to worship the Lord, and as they went in to God who was holy, they had to wash their hands and wash the vessels 
indicating I'm dirty and there's sin and brokenness and I need to wash to be clean before this clean, holy God. That, that, that was the context. Now the Pharisees, they decide they're going to take it from that particular people in that particular place and just decide everyone's gonna do this all the time. So your average gal or man goes to the market and before they eat their version of the McDonald's meal deal, they had to go through this ritual. That's the scene. Now, again, like we might be tempted to think like, well, maybe the Pharisees are just being extra careful. So um, after all, like the reason that God's people are under Roman rule right now, according to God's word, is that they have rebelled against God. They have defiled God. They have become unclean as a nation, if you will, and they are reaping the curses that God had promised to give. And so the Pharisees, in some ways, they're, they're trying to say, we need to get back to honoring God. We hadn't, and therefore that's why we're here. We need to honor him so that we might be declared good and get back into the land and out of Roman rule. Here's the problem. So they had, I mean, this high incentive. I just like, I want you to like picture, this isn't just like a casual, you know, you take it or leave it. Like this is really, really important to the Pharisees and they've won a lot of people over to their position. They're really popular. We'll get to that in a little bit. They're really popular among the crowds, but they're trying to be careful. But here's the problem. They totally got the wrong answer. So already, like by the time Moses gets to the, edge of the promised land. So remember, Moses is going to die before they get in the promised land. And in the book of Deuteronomy is kind of this like last, these sermons before God's people go in there. And before God's people get ready to go into the land, God already knows that this reality is going to happen. What? The reality that they are going to fall short, that they are going to fail to keep God's word. So after this, these long list of, if you obey, this will happen. If you disobey, these will come. You get in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. I don't have a slide for this, but I'll, I'll just read it for you. And when all these things that come upon you, the blessings and the curse. So God's clear. There is going to be a day when the curse is going to come upon you, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God and your children. Okay, so... Moses preaching, saying, the day will come when rebellious Israel will rebel and they're gonna turn their back on God and the curses will come. You will be out of the land. You will be longing to be back in this promised land and you need to turn back to God. The Pharisees are trying to do that, but here's the problem. Deuteronomy 29.4, well, I'll put this text up later, but I'm just gonna give it to you right now. Here's Deuteronomy 29.4, just right before this, here's God giving the diagnosis. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. As God's people stood on the, just the cusp of getting into the promised land, God declares there will come a day when you will rebel. And the reason is, is because I have not yet given you a heart to understand. The problem is your heart is corrupt. And in God's providence, his people had a corrupt heart, and the reality is one would come, Jesus, who would give God's people a new heart. Now, listen to Jesus' words as he rebukes the Pharisees for clearly missing the mark, applying the wrong diagnosis because they've got the wrong problem. Here's what 
he says to them. This is verse 6 and 7 in Mark. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So their hearts, they're far. The commandments they're teaching, they're not even God's commandments. They're other commandments that they're trying to teach. And so what's going on is a group of people, Israel, has a heart problem. And the Pharisees are trying to solve it by having them scrub their hands in a certain way before they eat McDonald's, whatever that was. It wasn't McDonald's, to be clear, whatever it was. Here's the verdict. This is verse seven, or excuse me, verse eight. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So not only did they miss the heart, but then the, the thing that they introduced wasn't even God's word, but traditions of men. Now, what we normally often have in our minds when we picture a Pharisee, we often picture these like really strict law keepers. And that's not wrong. That's at times what they're described as. But I, I would want you to see, as I just saw it put this way, it's really helpful. In this text, they are not actually law keepers. They are law inventors. They invented the law of washing your hands before you eat in the market. They've created a ritual. They've created a tradition. And in doing so, they have left God. They've missed the heart and they've introduced the wrong commands. And a bunch of people are following them. And all of those people are living under the impression that God is speaking very good over them. So I just want here, let me picture it like this. Um, it's, I don't know if you've gotten ever into a hobby that's kind of maybe a more technical hobby. So take something like, um, like photography, take something like that. Okay, um, you, you gotta take some time to learn photography if you're gonna really get into it. So you, you could though, and, and this will be enticing if you were to just try right now to take up photography. What will be enticing is that you will, if you buy this really nice camera, and then you buy a really nice lens, you're, you're gonna try to buy, you're, you're trying to buy into this lie that if you buy these really good things, you're actually gonna be really good at photography. But the reality is, if you don't know anything about light, and if you have no idea what aperture and shutter speed do and how that affects light, you, like, it doesn't matter how good this camera and this lens are, you are not, you are not going to be good at photography. But you're gonna look like you're good at photography you're really going to look like you've got everything going on, but you didn't do the hard work of learning the skill, the technical side, the artistic eye piece. Here's the Pharisees who, who've got something on the outside that makes them look really, really clean, but they, they're not doing the hard work of digging in and seeing how ugly their hearts are and realizing I need this heart to change. They're just deciding that, you know what? I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna fix this by giving people really nice clothes and on the inside, it's really ugly. And the reality is that is not going to work. And it doesn't work. And Jesus is calling them out because people are buying in to this lie. So here, here's, how I, um, here's how I heard it 
output. I think it's helpful. Uh, what this means is that it is a sin to invent sins. That's what the Pharisees are doing. It's sinful that your disciples aren't washing their hands the way that the elders have done. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not right. That's sin that you even said that. And you might think, this is so foolish. Like, how, how would you even fall for that? And yet, um, we, we just pause and just need to pause and say, are there places in which we are leaving the commandment of God and holding to the traditions of men? I would love to just think it's just relegated to the time of the Pharisees that, that we would fall into this trap of inventing things that we need to do in order for God to be approving of us. Like, I mean, it could be as simple and as subtle as you feeling like you must pray in the morning to be right with God. Or that you've got to finish this reading plan by the end of the day. Otherwise, and here, like, here's the reality. Th both of those things are fine and good and actually helpful. And most of us should probably do them. Probably, that is. But they're not, they are not what makes us clean any more than scrubbing our hands makes us clean. And those rules and those regulations aren't any more of God than it is to say you must homeschool your kids or you must vote this way, or you must, and you could just, just keep the list going. We could just keep going of a bunch of rules, laws, regulations that we think you must do in order to be clean or right or declared good. The reality is, here's the reality, none of those things are what makes us wicked. It's our sin. You could do those things in sin, and that would then therefore make it wicked. But the reality is, the problem is not scrubbing our hands, the problem is our heart and the Pharisees are going to double down on this reality where Jesus is going to call them out, doubling down in this next scene. So we've seen dirty hands, and now we're going to see them talk about a dirty, dirty money, if you will, a, a way to yet again introduce laws of man in exchange for the word of God. So we'll look at... Point number two, dirty hands, which now begins in verse nine. The context here is, again, Moses declares to God's people, honor your father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Now, honoring your father and mother. Uh, I mean, I, you know, as a, a child and now as a parent, I can say it's costly. It's not easy. And the reality is, um, it's going to require sacrifice. So, dirty money. Like, what, where did I even come up with this term? Well, what, what happens is the Pharisees twist this idea of korban, which was an Old Testament idea. It was this idea that you could give things to God. You could give some of your um, possessions to the temple, to the kingdom of God, um, to be used for God. And what they've done, though, is they've twisted it to help people avoid taking care of their parents. So look at the, uh, starting in verse 11, and you'll, think I'll, you'll see what I mean. If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you, these are the Pharisees, no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Okay, so here's what would happen. You would give your house to, for example, to the Pharisees, to the temple, and say, Corbin, and then 
I, I think probably an equivalent would be um, like certain kind of charitable donations that you could make that would allow you in the moment to continue to live in your house while you're living, but then when you die, then it would go, then it would go to this charity. And so kind of picture something like that where uh, the son decides, all right, this house, all of its proceeds, you know, those, those kind of things, you know, in the future, they're going to go to God, Corbin. And then um, what it would do is they could continue to live. So, it, so say they lived on a piece of farmland. They continued to farm, and they got the wheat and the potatoes or whatever it might have been. And they could continue to eat and become richer and all of those things while they lived and avoid giving it to their parents to care for them because they've declared that it belongs to God. And so they just need to kind of keep it, keep it in the house, and that way they're going to give it. You see, you see what I mean? It just they, they declare this so they can't go take care of their parents. And the Pharisees make it even worse. If you decided later you didn't want to do this, you had to pay an inordinate amount of money to get out of Corbin. So that's what he means. Like, you no longer permit him to do anything. You can't even get out of it. So I, I remember seeing this story of someone in, the, in these days declares Corbin, and now his parents can't even come over to his house, but he decides he wants to have them come over for his son's wedding, but they're not allowed to because of Corbin. Ironically, what he does to sidestep it is he sells the property to a friend. I think that friend is then supposed to maybe sell it back. And then, and then the friend actually declares Corbin. He betrays him, declares Corbin, and now the parents can't come again. But you just see like what, the, the point to see, they've twisted God's word. And now, if in the first example, they've moved God's word that belonged here in the temple and called other people to do it here, what they've done now is they've introduced a commandment that not only is not something that God required, but it is now being used to directly disobey God's word. That's why I say dirty money. Like it's, it's, it's taking something, you are under the guise of worship and honoring God, giving something to God for the sole purpose of not caring for your parents. That's what's happening. That's what they're encouraging or at least creating. And now, um, this is from Joe Rigney, and I think it's a helpful summary. Again, kind of clarifying in this scene what the picture of the Pharisees is. Because we like to picture them, again, kind of making these burdensome rules and regulations. And that does happen. But here, sometimes the Pharisees invent their own laws in order to avoid, to help people avoid obeying God's law. And so now you can kind of see why the Pharisees might be so popular to all these people. Because what they've done for all their holiness and all of their times of kind of keeping this strict rules, they have actually now made law keeping easier. So here's what I mean. It's hard to care for your parents when they're getting older. It's a lot easier to say Corbin. It's really hard to follow the Ten Commandments. It's a lot easier to wash your dishes. So you see, like, what they've done is they've taken what the law is calling, and they have decided, I'm going to sell you a nice camera and a nice lens instead of you doing the hard work of figuring out how to take pictures or instead of figuring out the hard work of what it means to let the Spirit of God come down, dig down, see the ugliness in our hearts, see that wickedness, allow God to transform it, and then do the hard work of, let's just take one example, loving your neighbor. 
I mean, it's far easier to do a lot of other things than love your neighbor. And the reality is, in Christ, we have new hearts that then allow us to be able to do it. But we've, we've exchanged, at times, the virtue signaling, if you will, of washing your hands in the market to putting up Instagram posts and Facebook posts. It's not wrong to tweet and put up your post. It is wrong if you're doing that instead of loving your neighbor. That would be the idea. That if there's things in your life that you're doing and it is far easier to do it than actually go out and honor your father and mother or love your neighbor. I don't know what that is in your life, in our life, but I do know it's a stench in the nostrils of our Lord. And it is unnecessary and it does not lead to God declaring that we are good. Why? Because the problem is not that we need to wash our hands. The problem is not that bacon is our problem. It is that we need a new heart. And so here's where we go. The last section, dirty hearts, 14 through 23. Jesus is going to dig in and really get into the core reality of what's going on. Because here's the thing. The disciples are pretty confused at this moment. They, they all go into the house and they talk to Jesus and like, Jesus, what is going on? What are you talking about? And Jesus just wants to make clear, you've got a heart problem. So everyone's in, everyone is in cardiac arrest and the Pharisees are like, hey, wh why don't you give them a nice clean pair of clothes so they look good while they're dying? That's essentially what's going on. And Jesus is saying, well, I think what you need is heart surgery. And so look at verse 18 and we'll begin to see that. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. He says this. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So now, I mean, if you're sitting here wondering, like, why does Don keep talking about bacon? Number one, because it's delicious. That's one reason. Uh, number two, it's because of, of this reality that is pointing to a far more important principle than maybe just the line he declared all foods clean uh, might at first make us think. So here's the important principle under what Jesus is doing in this section. The Jews, they couldn't eat bacon or pork belly or shrimp or catfish or crab or on and on we could go. I don't think they could eat hawks or eagles. I don't know if people eat those, but they couldn't eat those either if you've had that. Probably rattlesnakes, same thing. Like there's, there's list, list, list. Now, out of all things, the Pharisees are, if, if they're talking about this, they were right. This was definitely in the Old Testament, list of what were clean and unclean, but here's what it was supposed to do. The reason it was there is because it declared to a watching world something unique about God's people, it's, it declared that they were holy and righteous and they couldn't associate with unclean things. And so if they did, they became unclean. But now Jesus has come. And Jesus, one of the implications of him coming is that he fulfilled the law. And so that these rules and regulations about what they needed to eat to be shown to be clean was no longer what needed to happen. Why? because the one standing before them is the one who makes them clean. So that's why in the, in, in the market, when he's, when he's healing 
all of these people in the scene right before that, that probably leads to this conversation, the image is that Jesus is the one who when uncleanliness comes to him, he doesn't become unclean, they become clean. And so God's people were supposed to see in Jesus, God's people were reconstituted now. The Israel of God was because they were in Jesus and therefore their cleanliness came not whether or not they ate bacon, but if they were in Jesus. That is what they were supposed to see. That's what's happening. The reality is then nothing from the outside is making them unclean. And so what is Jesus coming to fix but the uncleanliness of their heart? So I definitely, quick aside, I definitely believe or agree with people who say bacon is victory food. Like we should be eating it as victory food. Go eat a bacon double cheeseburger to declare to the world that you are clean because of Christ, not because of bacon. And if you don't like bacon, that's fine. Go eat crab or catfish as victory food. It's, yeah, we can talk about that later. But um, the reality is Jesus is pointing to corrupt hearts. And in case it was unclear, here's where he clarifies it without a doubt. Verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. So so not from what we eat. They come from within, from the heart, and they defile a person. So now I think you can see why it wouldn't work to just wash your hands. Because the problem is the ugliness, the messiness, the brokenness, it is coming from hearts that are broken. But the Pharisees, they've realized something. They've tapped into something. And what they've tapped into is that deep down in every single one of us is a longing to be declared good a longing to be declared clean. And deep down, every one of us is the knowledge, you might have suppressed it, but you just pause for a moment and you realize down there is the reality and the knowledge that you are not clean. You're longing to be declared good and right, justified, you know you're wicked. But no matter how strict the Pharisees' laws were or how easy they were in order to fool yourself into thinking you've done all the right things, the problem is that theft, slander, pride came because of corrupt hearts. So here's how James puts it. This is James 1, 14 through 15. Puts it this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. So slander, adultery, theft, murder, they begin as corrupt realities bubbling up from our hearts. These desires are here, and they're bubbling up. And so the problem is not just that we sin. The problem is, here's the problem, we are sinners meaning we've got hearts that are corrupt and broken, and therefore we stand before God, not just with a list of adultery, slander, theft, murder, but with hearts that bubbled up those realities. 
that's where the desires began. Now, I'll close here, again, pointing us to Deuteronomy 29.4. Again, this is God talking to his people, saying this, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That was the description of the majority of God's people. Now, within some of God's people were some who God did give this new birth, this new heart. But by and large, the problem with God's people is that they did not have new hearts. And therefore, in their attempt to follow the law, follow any rules, they consistently fall short because they needed new hearts. And so what does the Old Testament then over and over point to? It points to a time and it points to a person who would come and give God's people a new heart. Here's just one spot. This is Ezekiel 36. We'll pick up in verse 25. This is God's promise to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This whole section is pointing to the fact that standing before them is this promised one that God said would come. The one who would take their uncleanliness and wash them clean. The one who would take their hearts and give them a new heart. And you know what they want? Jesus to wash his hands. Because they're convinced that if you wash your hands and you say, Corbin, you're good. And Jesus is saying, I'm standing, I mean, just, I just wish I could be there. Jesus like, I, I just, yes, give me the new heart and there, uh, can we do this hand, can we wash our hands? And Jesus is promising to give them new hearts. So here's the way Paul puts it. For our sake, that's, this is God, God made him, it's Jesus. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, that we might become those who are declared right in God's eyes, those who are declared good. We crave the praise of people who are praiseworthy. Above all, we praise and value and long for the created one, God, above all things, to speak his very good over us. We were born with this desire, just like Adam, to hear from God himself, you are good. And you can sit and put on the nicest dress that the Pharisees have to offer, the nicest clothes, and it will not declare from God to you that you are good. The Pharisees' rules won't get there, and deep down, the reason the Pharisees had a draw is because we, we as people know and we long for this good, and yet we know we're not. And so we cry out for justification, and we long for it. We long for this, and the answer is found in Christ himself nowhere else. And I don't know if you've ever considered that you could never, con you, you could never keep enough laws to stand right before God. 
I mean, some, some scholars would say there were 613 of them in the Old Testament. You couldn't, you couldn't keep them all to stand right before God. And what, what happens is that there's this reality of the law and the reality of the gospel. And over here, there's the law and the Pharisees even inventing their own. And here's how one famous theologian said it about the law. He said, the law says, run, John, run. The law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. So here's the law saying, do all of these things. Wash your hands, say corp, do this, do that, do this thing. And yet the law doesn't give us what we need. That is, it doesn't give us the new heart that Christ promised. Here's gospel. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. We want to hear from God himself that we are declared clean and there's one place you're gonna find it. It's not in law, it's not in laws invented, it's not in keeping them all, it is finding your very good from God spoken over you in his son who became sin that you might be declared the righteousness of God or here, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's on that note that we come to the table. It's on that note that we get to come this morning and take communion together. We come as those who in reality without Christ are wicked, rebellious sinners, no better than God's people on the, on the cusp of the promised land, standing with broken hearts before a holy God, with hearts that are unclean and God clean. And yet in Christ, we have good news. It is the good news that your heart can be cleansed and you can have a new heart in Christ. His blood washing over us, declaring us clean. And so the table, the Lord's Supper, as we're gonna take communion together, this is for all those who find in Christ that hope. That in Christ, in Christ alone, we are declared clean. So you don't need to be a member of our church to join us in communion, but you do need to be trusting in Jesus. And if you've never considered this Jesus, I would invite you to consider him now. Consider him, let the elements pass as you consider where would you go to be made clean before this holy God? And I would say, go to Jesus. Now, for those of you who do trust in Christ, I would ask, would you hold on to the elements? We're gonna take them together and just remember this good news of Christ's blood. So I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, the worship team will come up and uh, the community service will get ready and we'll pass the elements once I finish praying for us. Father, thank you that you sent your son. We would stand under condemnation and under a law we could not stomach, we could not do. We would add other laws that would try to justify us, that would try to declare us clean and right and good, and none of it would do it, and yet you've given us your son. What a gift. And so, Father, as we come this morning to remember that he died so that we might live, as his blood was shed so that we might be made clean, would you now, as we come to the table, remind us of this good news until he returns. Be with us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.